Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. As you can see, there's a lot of exciting things going on here uh, at our church, and you guys are a huge part of that. And so we got the 1-8 project coming, and as we uh, kind of land the plane in to finish this project so that we can break ground, uh, I want to encourage you to get involved, as the video said. Uh, also, another exciting thing we have going on, if you want to mark your calendars for June 3rd and June 4th, that's a Friday and a Saturday, we're going to have our Connection Family Weekend uh, which is a big deal for us here at Connection. We uh, love our families and we love our kids and we believe that the primary disciple makers uh, in families are the parents. And so uh, for us, we don't just do a vacation Bible school uh, in the summers where we're just ministering to your kids. We actually wanna bring in our parents uh, and do a specific teaching uh, for you guys on marriage and on parenting and how to uh, maybe even navigate some of the issues that we're seeing uh, in, our, in our culture today. And so on Friday night, uh, we'll have all of our parents over at Elements uh, for a date night. We'll have some great food and a great talk on marriage. And then Saturday morning, we'll have our parents over uh, here in the small auditorium and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about parenting. Uh, meanwhile, our kids on Friday and Saturday will be here at STC doing a vacation Bible school uh, with them. So sign up. You can do that online, on Facebook. Uh, you can do it uh, on our app. Either way, uh, sign up for us so we know how many to prepare for. You guys do not want to miss that, I promise. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, we have a doozy of a, of a passage this morning. Uh, so before we begin, I want you to know uh, there's a lot of controversy uh, around this uh, chapter, around these two specific gifts uh, that Paul is going to address today uh, of prophecy and tongues. And so we know in the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a real church, real people uh, that have real questions and are having real issues. And so in chapter 12, uh, he began to talk to them about spiritual gifts and uh, how the Spirit of God empowers the people of God with gifts to build one another up, to serve one another, uh, to help each other grow. And so we've talked a little bit about that. What are the gifts? What are their purpose? Uh, and then also the, the fact that love needs to be the foundation of us utilizing our gifts for other people. And so today we're gonna dive in, as Paul does, specifically into what he calls the sign gifts of prophecy and of uh, tongues, which are important and how they should operate uh, in the church. And so here's what I know. Many of us have had different experiences uh, with these two gifts, some good, some bad. And I want you to know that that's okay but the most important thing for us is that we allow God's word to shape our view of the spiritual gifts and not our experiences shaping God's word. Does that make sense? Everybody in on that? And so we wanna study God's word and allow that to inform our experiences that we encounter outside. Uh, so when it comes to these two gifts, the sign gifts, prophecy and tongues, there's generally about three positions that people hold. And so you've probably noticed uh, from the type of church that maybe you have experienced in your past uh, being one of these positions. And here's what I want you to know. Uh, we can learn from all of these positions, uh, and, and so they're important to understand. The first is this. There are some people who hold the cessationist position. Key word in that is cease. Uh, this position uh, holds and believes that gifts like prophecy and tongues and healings have ceased uh, and here's why. They believe these gifts were special sign gifts that were relevant only to a particular era of the church and which have ceased in our day. 
uh, many of our Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian and more traditional uh, brothers and sisters operate in this position. Now, full disclosure, uh, I do believe that many of these gifts were more relevant and have been more relevant in certain eras of Christian history uh, than others, but there is, I can't find anything or anywhere in Scripture uh, in the Bible that justifies a blanket claim that prophecy tongues and healings and miracles have ceased at all. I don't think you should hold that uh, position. But if you hold that and you're here, we love you. We're not gonna kick you out of our church. I just believe you're wrong. In fact, <clears throat> Paul ends this chapter telling the Corinthians not to forbid the practice of these gifts. And so we must do something with that. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul told us that these kinds of gifts would continue at least in part until we see Jesus face to face and that hasn't happened yet. So for us, we do not believe that the gifts have ceased. Now on the other end of the pendulum, let's go all the way to the other side. We have our Pentecostal position. Now before you get mad at me, if you came from a Pentecostal church, I would say this is a full-blown Pentecostal uh, church. Uh, so this maybe even makes some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters uh, uncomfortable. So they believe that the gifts are in full operation and that every Christian uh, should experience prophecy and tongues. And if you haven't experienced them, they would go so far to say you should question to see if there's something wrong with you spiritually. Many people that hold to this position uh, will teach that speaking in tongues is the primary evidence that a person has been saved or is the primary evidence of a spirit-filled church or a spirit-filled person, and I would strongly disagree with that. I think that does a lot of harm, and there's no warrant in Scripture to say that at all. It is a gift, it is a good gift, but it is not the primary evidence of someone's salvation. There's many people that were saved in Scripture that did not speak in tongues when the Spirit came. Also, if you've ever been to a service with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, it can be quite uh, an experience. Uh, there can be many people prophesying and speaking in tongues at the same time, which I believe 1 Corinthians 14 is going to speak into and directly teaches against. And so keep in mind, I'm not describing every Pentecostal church that you've been a part of. Some may be a little more tame when it comes uh, to prophecy and tongues. But there are some that are straight up practicing the very thing the Corinthians were and just ignoring what the scriptures say about them today. One thing that I will love and I would encourage that we can learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is they have a deep desire for more of God and to operate in the spiritual gifts. And personally, I pray that God would give me a hunger to desire more for him and more of him and more of the spiritual gifts. And I pray that for you as our church. And so before we write them off, we can learn that. Which brings me to the third position, which is where I would say we fall as a church, and not just us, but there are a lot of Christian evangelicals around the world that would fit into this category theologically. And here's what we believe. We believe that Scripture teaches that all the gifts are still in existence and operation, including prophecy, including tongues, including healing and miracles. But not every believer has or will experience every gift. God gives them as he sees fit to accomplish his purposes. So when it comes to the sign gifts, we recognize that most of the ways the gift are being used today in so-called spirit-filled churches 
are neither biblical nor helpful. So I understand, I'm not ignorant. I know there's a lot of abuse that maybe some of us have experienced there. But I also know uh, there are some accurate and some good gifts, merit sign gifts that people have experienced in here that are good. I recognize and I've had conversations with even some of you uh, where there's a lot of manipulation uh, and psychological tricks involved when it comes to some of these gifts. And I've, I've told you what I believe about that. And if that's you, I'd love to have a deeper conversation. I can't really have that from the stage today. We also recognize that a lot of things that go under the name of the Spirit in certain circles aren't necessarily of the Holy Spirit. There may be some other spirits in operation, and we need to understand that. And God desires us, as Paul tells us in chapter 14, which we're about to look at, to do all things decently and in order. However, just because these gifts are being abused in some other churches or among other people doesn't mean that we can stop believing in them. It's important that we understand that. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So like Paul says, we want to be a church that eagerly desires all the gifts and seeks to practice them biblically. I honestly, personally want to be the kind of church where people frequently say, after coming into one of our services or going to a small group, that they experienced the presence of God when they were here. And I pray and I hope that that is your same aim because that is what the church is all about, people tangibly experiencing the presence of God. And they do that uh, through the Spirit of God at work in us through and to them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse one. I hope you are buckled up. This is a long chapter. I'm gonna try to get through the entire thing. Uh, it is very intriguing and there are a lot of questions that may pop in your mind. I want you to know they pop in my mind too. But I can't preach for six hours, so I'm just going to walk through and do my best to explain uh, these things. So, verse one. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them because they utter mysteries by the Spirit. So again, the past two weeks, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. We've learned they are very important. God has designed the church so that it's not about one individual, but we are a body, and it's important that we're all operating in our gifts through the Spirit for the church to be built up in maturity and love and unity. We've also learned in chapter 13 that love is important too, right? So it's important that our heart, our posture, what compels us in our practice of the spiritual gifts is love for one another and a desire to build the church up. So today, Paul's focusing in on these two specific gifts. These aren't the only two, but they're two big and good ones and, and ones that were, were really uh, out of whack in Corinth, and so that's why he puts a huge focus on them. But it's one of the only scriptures in the Bible that we get on these. And so we need to understand it, which is why I'm excited to preach it. So what do we learn here about tongues? The word in Greek for tongues is glossé, which is literally the gift of languages. So anywhere you see uh, you know, people from every tribe, every tongue, that word in Greek is glossé. So that's important to understand. A couple things Paul points out. One, tongues are spoken to God, not people. Right? So if you ever uh, see tongues being practiced, it should be a language given uh, where a person is speaking to God. 
right? So if you've ever been at a service, somebody breaks out speaking in tongues, is there an interpreter? An interpreter stands up and says, hey, Joe said that there's an outreach going on that you should be at tomorrow. You know that's a lie because that's spoken to the people and not to God, right? So it's a prayer language that is between God and a person, and so we need to understand that. Number two, they are mysterious utterances or foreign languages, right, and or. So the Bible's not super clear on this, but you see uh, that they are uh, mysterious utterances. So there's something that you don't understand. Um, I would hope they're languages, because if they're not languages, we don't really have a meaning for them. So you see it that way. A good working definition is this. Tongues are a form of prayer and praise that you express to God in a language that you do not understand, okay? Tongues, well, once again, are a form of prayer and praise that you express to God in a language that you do not understand. So in order to properly understand this gift, I believe you gotta go all the way back to Genesis and we gotta learn a little bit about the history of language in the Bible and in the human race. So I'm not gonna teach you the whole Bible, just bear with me, I think it's important that you understand this. In the garden, that's where the Bible starts, mankind has one language and mankind was in direct communication with God, having perfect communion with God, perfect fellowship. There was a good relationship there. Unfortunately, this relationship changed at the fall when Adam sinned against God and Eve uh, were cursed and banished from Eden along with their descendants. So mankind continued to have one language all the way up until Genesis chapter 11. If you've been here a while, we preached Genesis 11 last year. It's called the Tower of Babel, where God confused their language and people were dispersed throughout the earth. And he did this because the people had united together in one language and conspired to build a tower at a place called Babel. Their intention was to make a name for themselves and thus replace God in their hearts. And it's important to see pride or sin is the birthplace, uh, or pride is the birthplace of sin, and regrettably, fallen man has decided to use every advantage, including language, to usurp God's authority and place himself upon a throne which is not righteously his. So after God confused their language at Babel and scattered them across the earth, he then chose one people called the Israelites. This is in Genesis chapter 12 with one language, which was Hebrew, to bring him glory and to draw mankind back to himself. Abram, or later called Abraham, was the one through whom God promised to bless all the nations, or every tribe, every tongue in the world. And eventually, through the nation of Israel, the Hebrew language would be used to communicate God's word to the nations. However, the rest of the world did not speak or understand the Hebrew language. And for the most part, they continued to remain ignorant of God's plan of redemption. Not everybody, but for the most part, uh, it was in Hebrew. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, so we see that. All right, so now flash forward past Christ. Christ comes, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, he ascends back to heaven, and now we come to the book of Acts, which is where we see the tongue, the gift of tongues show back up with us. Acts chapter two, verses one through four, says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, right? These were the believers. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind 
came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's important. So tongues, there's a lot of Jewish people from a lot of different nations. So listen to what God does. He gives the gift of tongues. Verse six, when the, when the Jews heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of these people, these Jewish people, it heard their own language being spoken. And then it goes on down in verse 11, and they say, we hear them, these Galileans, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue, right? So it's a super cool part of scripture where God gives the gift of tongues and people begin hearing them praising God in a language, uh, in their own language that's not the same language that they traditionally speak in Jerusalem. So what do we learn? Here, tongues were other human languages. Uh, and they may have been unknown to the speaker, but they were known to somebody, and somebody recognized it as praise to God in his native language. Hence why he says, hey, they're praising God in my language, and they don't know my language. So here we see tongues given as a sign from God to the Jewish people there that something big is going down, something big is happening, namely that the gospel is meant to go out to all languages, and then Peter stands up and preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people uh, get saved. And essentially, what we see happening in Acts 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, uh, so to speak. So at Tower of Babel, God judged. He dispersed out of judgment. Now the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. They stand up, praise God, preach the gospel. Different languages now back into the kingdom of God. So it's a very cool thing that's happening for God. Again, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, the gift of tongues shows up again. Billy, why are you showing me all of these instances? Well, there's only three instances in the Bible where we see the gift of tongues come. So it's important that not only do we understand that, but we look into each of them to say, okay, well, what were they used for in the Bible so that we can know how to use them today? Acts 10, 44. This time, Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his band of Roman soldiers. So again, you have Jewish people there. You also have Gentiles or just non-Jewish people that do not speak Hebrew like the Jewish people do. So listen, this was the first time that the Gentiles or non-Jews were hearing the gospel preached. So the gospel comes, Pentecost happens in Jerusalem, and then from there, God begins to spread the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. And as it goes into different locations, the gift of tongues is given, and it's used in an incredible way. So let's hear what's happening. Verse 44 in chapter 10 of Acts. While Peter was still speaking, he was sharing the gospel, sharing about God's plan, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, who is that? That's the Jewish people, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Why that surprised them, I have no idea, because they knew all along God was gonna take the gospel to the Gentiles. But for them, they had lost that picture of God's plan in Genesis 12. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So here we have Peter sharing the gospel with Cornelius and some Roman soldiers. While he's still talking, the Spirit comes, Gentiles begin speaking in tongues. Again, these tongues were a sign. That's why I call it a sign gift. Who were they assigned for would be the question. Verse 46, the circumcised believers, Jews, 
heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Next question. How did these Jews, if they were speaking in tongues, know that the Gentiles were praising God or, extol, or praising and extolling God? Well, they must have been speaking in the Hebrew tongue for them to understand that, for all of them to know that was what was going on. Or maybe they had the gift of interpretation, doesn't say that, or maybe uh, they recognized it from Acts 2. That's hard to connect. So I'm going to assume that they were speaking in the Hebrew language, which was a language they didn't know, but that the Jews could recognize. So what's happening if that's the case? God is using tongues, again, as a sign that he is bringing other nations, all nations into his family to the kingdom of God. So keep in mind, up until this time, God had only been worshiped mostly in the Hebrew language. But he had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would extend his salvation into every tribe, every tongue, every language group on earth, and tongues were, going, were a sign that this was happening. And we see this happen again in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. I'm not gonna read it, but I'll tell you what happened. Again, uh, we see uh, Paul and, and, and the Jewish believers get there, and uh, there's a guy who has only heard of John's baptism. His name's Apollos. And so he says, hey, uh, have you heard of uh, the baptism of Jesus? And the guy's like, no, I don't understand what the baptism of Jesus is. We don't know who Jesus is. We were baptized by John, John the Baptist. It was a baptism of repentance. And so immediately he believes in Jesus, Holy Spirit falls, he begins to speak in tongues. Uh, this is in Ephesus, this is further away from Jerusalem as the gospel extends. And once again, we see the gift of tongues as a sign to the people of God, the Jews that were there, that God's plan is to get the gospel away from Jerusalem and to go to the ends of the earth in all languages, every tribe, every tongue. It's a really cool thing uh, when you look at the scriptures and see that there. Verse three, back to Corinthians, here we go. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their own strengthening, uh, for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. All right, so he switches gears. Now he's going with prophecy. So let me give you my dissertation on prophecy. Uh, what do we learn about prophecy? So in, con in contrast to tongues, which are mysterious forms of prayer and praise to God, they're signs, the one who prophesies, on the other hand, speaks God's word to people in specific situations for three things, their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their comfort. The Greek word for the gift of prophecy is prophetia, which is the ability to receive a divinely inspired message and then deliver it to others in the church. Really, really awesome gift. Why someone would wanna do away with it, I have no idea. It's an incredible uh, gift from God. These messages can take the form of exhortation, uh, correction, uh, the disclosure of secret sins. I can tell you some really cool stories. Uh, one lady uh, had the gift of prophecy when I was over in Statesboro, and we, we were praying uh, before a service one time, and uh, our worship team was backstage praying, and this lady comes in, and I mean, she's a prayer now. You know she's a prayer. She prays. That's what she does. And love it, you know, super encouraging. And so she's back here praying backstage with the worship team, and uh, she's praying, and they're in a circle. And she, 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 during the middle of her prayer, she's just praying. Everybody's fired up. And then she says, hey, and God's telling me uh, that there's someone in this circle right now about to go on stage to lead worship uh, that went out last night and broke the law and did some illegal things. 
And then she just keeps rocking, like keeps going on with her prayers. So God, I'm just praying that you would give them the courage to go to the worship leader and repent of their sins before they go on stage and lead our church. And God, would you continue to bless the service? At that point, everybody in the circle's like, oh no, like what's going on? You know, so it's a, it's a super cool thing. And hands down, after, uh, after we got through praying, one of the guys that was on stage, about to go on and play, came to the worship leader and said, yeah, we did go out. I did do this last night. He was able to repent and do that. Now, what was the point of God giving her the gift of prophecy in that moment to speak a word to that person in that? Was it to condemn the person? I mean, I felt a little condemned. I probably would have felt a little condemned if I was him because she's sharing my business with all, all the people. But the purpose of prophecy is to expose people, uh, and she didn't do it for the sake of uh, condemning him, but in order for him to be edified and built up to confess his sin before he goes on and leads uh, the people. So it was a really cool picture. So that's one of the ways that it can be uh, used. It can also be the prediction of future events. It can be for comfort uh, when somebody's down. It can be an inspiration. Uh, other revelations given to equip and edify the body of Christ. So again, listen to how Paul talks about it. I'm gonna bounce all the way to verse 24 where he kind of gives a better definition. He says, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes into the church while everyone is prophesying, then they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. Does that sound familiar? So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you or God is really in this place. So the result of prophecy, according to Paul, is that God uses prophecy to convict people of sin and expose the secrets of our hearts so that believers uh, will worship God and lost people will even get saved. And so when the gift of prophecy is used correctly, then people walk away worshiping God, falling on their knees and saying, wow, God is here. That's why the gift is so good. That's why Paul is like, listen, this is the gift that you want, Corinthians. This is the gift that you want. And a few ways we see that in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. What does this look like practiced in Scripture? Because, again, we're not basing it off of our experiences, though those are cool. We want to know what Scripture says so that we can base our experiences off of Scripture's teaching on prophecy. Acts chapter 2, while preaching, Peter stands up. The Bible says he's filled with the Spirit. He begins to preach. He begins to prophesy, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's telling them about the history of Jesus and where he came from and the fact that these people had killed Jesus and murdered him, put him on a cross. You killed the Messiah. Boom, he's preaching the gospel. Immediately when he gets done, it says this words. The, all of the people were cut to the heart, and then they repented, and they believed in the gospel, and so we see prophecy used while Peter is preaching, and then 3,000 people are cut to the heart and saved because of that. So prophecy, again, phenomenal gift. A lot of times, I get this when I'm preaching. People will come up to me after the service and say, man, how did you know what was going on in my life? You kept looking at me during the sermon. I'm like, first of all, I don't know your name. Secondly, where were you sitting? And thirdly, I don't know what's going on in your life. Or they'll say, man, did you read my journal? Did somebody give you my journal? Or did my wife call you? Or, uh, you know, I know you were talking to me. And it's like almost confrontational. And I'm like, bro, calm down. Like, I'm not, I'm just preaching the Bible. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And so, no, I haven't done those things. But what happens is when I'm sharing the word of God, many times God will give me the gift of prophecy. And in that, what will happen, sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. 
And what will happen is that prophecy or that word comes in a good moment for a person and cuts them to the heart and draws them to repentance and draws them to worship God. And that is what the gift of prophecy does, and it is an incredible gift. But Paul wants us to understand, and it's important for us to understand, that prophecy is not just a gift for preachers on a stage. It's important. Paul envisions a congregation. This is who he's writing to in which prophecy happens in conversations at all levels, at church gatherings, in small groups, in one-on-one conversations with one another. We get this in Acts chapter 21, verse 10, where we see a person, a man by the name of Agabus, and Paul's on his journey, and after uh, he had been in Caesarea for a number of days, this is verse 10, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, and he tied, it on, uh, he tied his hands and his feet with it, uh, and the Holy Spirit, and then he said this, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here we get Agabus, word from God. He directly prophesies to Paul. He acts it out. He does the whole charade, which is great, in Jerusalem. But it's also important to note that Agabus was mostly correct, so, but not entirely. Because ultimately, when you, when you play out in the future event in the book of Acts, it was the Romans who bound Paul, not the Jews, and the Jews did not take Paul captive, but they did try to kill him, which brings up an important point about prophecy, specifically uh, after the apostles in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, when a prophet would speak, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, all these guys would stand up and prophesy When they prophesied, it was equivalent with the word of God. Like we have it written down as the authoritative word of God came from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes it as the word of God. So it is authoritative and it is the word of God. However, uh, in the New Testament, we do the same thing with the apostles. So when Paul speaks or Peter speaks, it's written down for us, the authoritative word of God. However, in the New Testament, Outside of the apostles, uh, which is the 12, and then Paul, it's a little bit different. Paul teaches us to take those differently. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 tells the people there that all prophecies should be tested. And so when somebody gives a word, it should be tested. Tested against what? The word of God, the authoritative word of God, which he'll say later in 1 Corinthians 14. So when someone, here's our teaching, this is application. When someone gives you a word of prophecy, Someone says, hey, God's given me a word uh, for you uh, about your specific situation. Many of you guys have had that happen. If you haven't, I hope it happens, and I hope it's right. But when somebody comes to you with that, you should test it to see if it's really from God because you may get somebody that tells you something that says it's from God that ain't from God, and that'll mess you up. And so you need to learn to test it. So how do we test it? Well, we pray, God, is this from you? We examine God's word. Does this align with God's word and who he says I am and what he says his purpose is for my life? And then we seek godly counsel. There's people in here that have been Christians and have experiences with these things. They know the word of God. Ask them, hey, somebody told me this was from God. What do you think about this? Uh, Can you see it? Pray together draw a conclusion so that you can affirm it was from God or it wasn't from God. If it is from God, then you should hold fast to it. If it's not from God, then you need to disregard it and don't let it mess up your mind and everything about it. On the other hand, let's switch the roles. When we are the ones 
that give a word of prophecy. We're praying. We feel like God put something on our heart for a person or for our church. And, you know, you come to me and say, man, I feel like the Lord really wants you to talk about this or really wants this person to know this about them. Then here's what I would say. We must do so in humility. Never, ever, 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 ever claim the authority of God when you speak. Ever, ever. It's weird and it's not right. What you are saying is and can be fallible, right? That's what the New Testament gives us. And other people need to discern if it's from God. I trust you, but when it comes to you saying God gave you this to speak, that is a big thing to trust, right? That is huge. And even the prophet Agabus was off a little bit. And so we need to be humble about this. Let me give you a few examples. So uh, one, one time uh, after Dustin went out to plant a church in Athens and we figured out that's what he was going to do, uh, it kind of left a hole for me where I needed somebody to help. I needed another pastor and I didn't know who it was. Nobody was really uh, wanting to do it. Um, and so I began to pray. And uh, the person that kept coming to mind was Blake Hardiman. And uh, he wasn't even at our church at the time. I knew him from high school. had spent some time with him in one-on-one discipleship. And he had just gotten his dream job at CentOS, making a lot of money, more money he's ever made, set up for his family, retirement, all this different stuff. And so I knew it was going to crush him. And so I kept praying. I prayed for like a week. I was like, Lord, is this, is this right? And just continually in my head, in my mind, in my heart. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to say something to him about it. So I come to him. I'm like, Blake, I'm not saying this is God. But what I am saying is when I pray about who's supposed to be in this position, in this role, I feel like the Lord's putting you on my heart for it. So I just, I don't know what you want to do with that, but just let it get in there and cook around a little bit and see what happens. Just pray over it. I'll pray for you, you pray over it. So anyway, he comes back about a week later. He's like, Billy, no, it's not me. Absolutely not. I'm happy at CentOS. He's almost excited to tell me that. You know, he's like, nah, bro, that ain't me. I'm making a bunch of money doing this. And so I was like, yeah, okay, well, maybe I missed it. Maybe I did. I'm not perfect. I can miss things. And so uh, I go back to praying and man, still there. And, and, and then I get a phone call, Blake Hardiman, you know, a couple of days later, and he's crying. I'm like, got him, got him, you know? And so he calls me, and he's like, hey, man, I need to come talk to you. And I'm like, all right, either something bad happened or maybe God did something. So God obviously had spoken to him through his son and some other things and basically confirmed, okay, this is what he was supposed to do. And so we see, again, a prophecy from God into my heart during my prayer time. That, that, is, that is God leading me and directing me to build up another person. And now Blake's here, he's flourished, he's done awesome. You know, it's been a cool, cool thing to see. Now on the opposite end, I'll give you another story. Uh, in Statesboro, when I was a pastor over there, I didn't really know what I was doing, still don't really know what I'm doing, but I was young, I just got into the ministry, had a guy, older guy comes up. This guy had, I think, previously been in the ministry at some point and had come to our church, not really gotten involved, was really... Uh, apathetic towards what we were trying to do, wasn't willing to serve. I mean, just a lot going on. His whole family was serving, but he was just kind of in the background thinking, it was almost like, I'm too good for this or something, you know? And so he comes to me one day after I preached a sermon. He's like, Billy, God has told me that I need to preach this sermon on this date, and you need to get me on stage to do it. And so in my head, I thought a million things. I didn't say anything. I said, okay, let me... Uh, can, let me pray about it. Let me, you know, think through it. And in my head, I knew the answer is no. Like, God's not going to give somebody who's prideful and not the heart to serve the people the position to do that. But God said that's valuable to me, so I, I pray about it. And I, you know, take it to our lead pastor, and he's like, absolutely not. No, this is not from God. We can pray on it, but I'm 100% sure this is not what he's supposed to do. He's not a member of our church. He's not 
desiring to serve the people of our church, there's no way God's, you know, moving him to, to, to stand on stage and, and preach or to prophesy something that God has put on his heart uh, to do. And so you see it work both ways in that. In other situations, one of our churches uh, at another location, uh, a guy comes in and he starts serving at, at youth at one of our uh, locations. And he comes to the lead pastor and he says, hey, God's given me a word. Uh, God told me that we need to shut this church down and you need to send all of these people uh, to the church that my uncle pastors out uh, in the country. And so he calls me, of course, and it, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, like it is funny, you know, because it's like clearly like God would not want to shut down a gospel-centered church that's making disciples and sending more people out to make disciples. Like the word of God says, plant churches, multiply disciples, uh, you know, not clearly not wanting to do it. But in this guy's heart, he felt like God had told him to say this and to come forward, you know? And it's like, in that moment, how do you respond to that person, you know? And so it's, it's just a, I'm telling you, prophecy can be used in a hundred different ways, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But here's the thing. I never, ever say to someone that this is what God says unless I have a chapter or a verse to back it up. That makes sense? Instead, I'll say something like this. You feel like God's given you a prophecy, which I want. I'm praying this for you, that you would begin to seek God on behalf of other people, and God would begin to speak to you on behalf of other people. Instead, say something like this. Listen, I think God has put this on my heart, and I think he might be saying this. But I want you to weigh this out. You pray about it. And then you kind of continue the conversation. And when, Because when you put divine weight behind your words, it puts the other person in a terribly awkward position. Like if you claim that God has told you something and you're sure, the other person has either got to submit to the words that you're saying or call you a false prophet. And that gets awkward for everybody. You know what I mean? And so the way that, that Paul presents this idea of prophecy in the New Testament, I believe, is to come to it with humility, but to be open to the fact that God can give you this gift, and it is a good, healthy gift for our church, and I pray that it would characterize us as a church. Verse 5, back to Corinthians. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. So Paul says, hey, tongues is a good gift. I want every one of you to do this. But I would rather you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So Paul clearly sees here prophecy as the greater gift. Why? Because it edifies the church. He says it's good to speak in tongues, but if you don't have an interpreter and nobody else can know what you're saying, it doesn't do anything for anybody. It may make you feel warm and fuzzy and great. But in the church, the gifts are given to build up other people. So in Paul's mind, greater gifts, he defines them as the gifts that most edify the church. It's the gifts that are given to edify the church the most, right? So here, prophecy is the gift that he wants for the Corinthians. That's not to say that prophecy has to be the gift that builds up our church the most. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's writing this in context to the Corinthians. Do I think it's a great gift that will build up our church a lot? Absolutely. But it could be that the gift that we need is hospitality or the gift that we need is teaching or the gift that we need is mercy. I don't know what it is, but we need to remain open-handed to say, God, whatever you're calling us to do in this moment, we want your gifts to operate in your, your will to accomplish your purposes in the world. This is the posture in which God wants his church uh, to be at. Those are the ones he wants us to desire. Verse six, now brothers and sisters, 
If I come to you and speak in tongues, then what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, then who will get ready for battle? Verse 9, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will, be, you will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If I then do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me, so it is with you. So Paul is clearly saying what's happening in the church in Corinth. And he's clearly frustrated with what's happening in Corinth because they're misunderstanding the purpose of spiritual gifts, namely the gift of tongues. Instead of using them to build others up, they're not worried about building others up. They're just worried about uh, basically uh, using the gifts to build up themselves and to make them feel superior or closer uh, to God. And when you miss the point of spiritual gifts or for the purpose of building up others, you miss the point of spiritual gifts. And Paul sees that. So he gives a couple of illustrations, one on music. If, if you don't know how to play music, it sounds terrible. It doesn't accomplish the purpose for it. He does the same thing with battle cries. They used to use trumpets to say we're going to war. Well, if you don't know what the, the trumpet sound means to go to war, it doesn't accomplish its purpose. The same thing with human languages. Like if, if I'm speaking to you guys in French, and nobody in here knows French, it does no good for anybody, and y'all are gonna be like, this dude's nuts, what is he doing? And so he's given these examples to show us that tongues, if they're not interpreted, don't benefit others, especially if no one understands what's being said. Verse 12, so it is with you. Since you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. That's his point. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. If there's not an interpreter, you should pray that you can interpret it to other people because it's a good gift, but if nobody knows what it means, it's useless. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? So Paul wants the church to amen each other. When you say something good, you guys are not good at that. But like when I say something that's good or you agree with, it's okay to say, man, that's good. Or hey, amen, I'm with you, like awesome. Uh, or you can just say, man, that's terrible. Like what are you talking about? No, I'm just kidding, don't do that. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of the inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he flexes on them a little bit there. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words that you can understand to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue that you can't understand. So again, Paul hammering into his point 
uh, here. He wants the Corinthians to seek and try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. He's honestly kind of baffled why they're making such a big deal of tongues when tongues aren't building anybody up. And so he, he makes this argument. Then Paul, of course, he says, tongues aren't bad because I speak in tongues more than all of you. And you got to remember, the Corinthians thought that they were really spiritual and superior because they spoke in tongues. So Paul is flexing a little bit there. So Paul was like, just for the record, I've got all of you guys beat. Uh, and you need to know that. But you don't hear me coming up in the church speaking in tongues because it don't do anybody else any good. I'd rather speak five simple words, he says, that you understand than 10,000 that you don't. Because I'm here with pure motives is what he's trying to uncover. His motives are to edify others, not to be selfish and try to look super spiritual, which is the issue that's happening here in Corinth. Verse 20, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. You know, that got him stirred up. He called them children. But in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So Paul literally says, stop acting like a child. To a group of grown people, that can't be good. Thinking, and the reason he calls them children is because they're thinking spiritual gifts make them impressive or make them closer to God. They're misunderstanding. He's like, it's not that hard to understand the purpose of spiritual gifts. And then he says, so start thinking like mature Christians or mature adults who know that the gifts are given for service, not for show. Like, understand that and, and walk in that. And then he quotes from Isaiah 28 to show them the reason that God gave tongues. Now, here's a disclaimer. Understanding Paul's reasoning here when he quotes from Isaiah and understanding what we see about tongues in the book of Acts is important if you want to understand the gift of tongues in Scripture. So let me read it again. In the law, this is Isaiah 28. That'll blow your mind. That was a part of the law. I thought that was a prophet. What? It is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, this is Paul again, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, okay? So you gotta know the context of Isaiah 28. Here's the Israelites, they're being disobedient to God. God sends Assyria to the northern kingdom of Israel to take over them. And he says they're gonna come in and they're gonna be speaking different languages and they're gonna take you captive because of your disobedience. Again, Paul, uh, he's saying tongues are a sign, but they're not a good sign. They're actually a sign of judgment on the Jewish people for being disobedient and not spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So who were they assigned for, right? So again, tongues, Paul says, are a sign. What do signs do? Signs communicate things. If you pass a stop sign, that says, I need to stop. Or if you go into a, a work zone and you see an orange sign, road work here, that communicates, hey, there's road work going on. Tongues are the same way. Hey, you hear tongues, you should immediately think something's going on. This is a sign gift from God. And so he goes on. So who were they assigned for? Well, Paul says here clearly in Isaiah, they were assigned for unbelieving Jews that were disobedient to God. More importantly, what kind of unbelievers were they assigned for? This people, he's talking to uh, the Jewish people. Jews are just God's chosen people. Like we're Gentiles, so tongues were assigned for the Jewish people, and that's why you see them practice mainly among them. This is true not only in Isaiah, but in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. Does that mean that there could be more tongues 
now that we're all kind of grafted into the Jewish people that are now used to light a fire up under us to go to the ends of the earth? Maybe so, I don't know, but the scripture doesn't tell us that. Tongues were a sign to unbelieving Jews that the gospel was not just for them, but it was for the whole world. So again, he's connecting it back to God's original purpose, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because you see, the Jews had a really hard time with this. Even though God had told Abraham that that was the goal from the very beginning, they thought God should only be worshiped in the Hebrew tongue. So when the gospel first went out to the Gentiles, according to Paul and Isaiah, God gave a miraculous sign to unbelieving Jews that this work, getting the gospel to the Gentiles, was from him. He confirmed it. Hey, this is it. This is me. This is what I'm doing. Jump on board. That was the purpose of the sign. And technically, they are a sign of judgment on Israel. They declare, you Jews wouldn't receive the gospel, so God is taking the gospel to the Gentiles who will listen. And so that's what we see happen at Pentecost. It's almost God filling his Christians to do what the, what the Jews were unwilling to do. This is where some people would disagree with me. And listen, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if you're here and you're saying, Billy, you're missing the point. This is what it is. Just trying to go by scripture and what it says. Some people would say, Billy, there's two types of tongues in the Bible. That's a very common teaching, and some of you may have heard that. There's one type that's a public tongues, right? That's what we see in the book of Acts. Uh, This is a sign for unbelieving Jews. And then others would say, okay, there's a second type, and this is a private tongues, and this is a private uh, angelic prayer language, and this is what we see Paul talking about some in Corinthians. I could probably make arguments for both. Like, you know, and I don't necessarily, you don't have to, figure out where I land on this. I can make arguments for both, but here's what I'd tell you. The first way, if you go with Paul's reasoning here and what we see in the book of Acts and in the Bible, the sole purpose for tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews. Then if you think about a private prayer language, it doesn't really fit or make sense unless there's unbelieving Jews in your private prayer time. That makes sense? But that is one view. The other view, which Paul does seem to suggest in verse four, that there's a type of tongues that edifies oneself, right? He does make that statement, and he makes a comment in chapter 13 that if I pray in the tongue of an angel, right? But if you read that in context, it kind of seems like he's being uh, sarcastic or exaggerated in that. Uh, and, and, And the other side is when you see angels come to earth, They don't speak in a tongue. They speak in a way that we can understand, right? So you got that. And then he makes another comment where he says, praying in tongues, I do more than any of you guys. And so you gotta ask, okay, was Paul talking about a private language? Was he speaking in tongues more than what the book of Acts recorded? I mean, he was on the front line. He was dealing with a lot of unbelieving Jews and planting churches with the Gentiles. So it makes sense that that could be in there. And so there are a lot of things that complicate this whole deal. You know, but here's what I'll leave you with. I'm only gonna go as far as the scripture tells us to go. And I'm okay with you if you're like, oh, well, I, th- I see this or I see that. I'd love to talk about it. But ultimately, you know, w- what you see in scripture is definitively based on these verses, the primary pur- purpose of tongues in scripture is that they are a sign to unbelieving Jews that God desires the gospel to go into all languages. Verse 22, Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in a tongue 
and inquirers or unbelievers come in, they will not say that you are out of your mind. So that's what Paul's worried about is you're speaking, everybody's speaking in tongues, nobody's interpreting. These unbelievers are like, these people are crazy. Some of you have been there before, verse 24. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, then they are convicted of sin and they're brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming that God is really among you. And so again, Paul's saying prophecy is the gift. If you wanna seek one, Corinthians, prophecy is where people are gonna get saved. It builds up both of the people. And so that's, and people literally leave saying, God is here, like God has spoken. And that's what the heart of Paul is here. Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or interpretation. That gives you some insight into the Corinthians. Like everybody was coming like, I got a word, you got a word, we got a word, hey, song, hymn, you know, prophecy, all this. And so the gathering is just like, like squirrel, you know, like everybody's got something. And Paul's like, what in the world is going on? So he says, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, and they should speak one at a time. And then someone must interpret. And if there is no interpreter, then the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So again, you see, all right, is he talking about that private language right there? Could be, that's, that's there. So Paul gives us those criteria. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak. Now he's going to prophecy. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. So prophet, you feel like God's given you a prophetic word for our church or, you know, and you wanna stand up and say it. You come and you tell me what it is. And I'm gonna say, I feel like that's, you know, that's aligns with God's word or it doesn't. So there has to be some order in how we do that. And then once the prophecy is given, it should be weighed correctly. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, then the first speaker should stop because the last thing we want is two people giving a prophecy and nobody understands what's happening. Again, order, verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Basically saying, if God gives you the gift of prophecy, you can have self-control and stop, let the other person share, and then come back and the other person. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And as if this passage wasn't already difficult enough, he throws this in there, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, then they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. How in the world do you interpret that? Well, so Paul, again, here he's talking about prophecy. He's given us his criteria. Only two or three prophets should speak. The others should be weighing what they're saying. Does it align with the word of God? And then he qualifies those and says, if one person prophesies, another person gets a word, he should stop. The other person uh, should stop. And then he speaks and then you come. But then as he's in that thought, he's thinking about women and he's basically saying women should not audibly evaluate prophecies during church meetings. And this goes back to Blake's sermon a few weeks ago on biblical headship. God's design for the church is that it should be led by men. So if I'm up here and God's giving me a word and I'm speaking it to you guys, if uh, you know one of the females stand up and say, Billy, that's not right, it's just kind of disrespectful. 
you know? But if she says, hey, uh, talks to her husband and says, hey, that's not right, you need to say something, and he stands up, it just comes across as better in the church because leadership in the church, specifically when people are weighing prophecy, should be a job for men to do. It's not that women can't do it, it's just that God wants that reserved for men. We know Paul is not saying that women should never speak at all during church services because literally in chapter 11, he encourages women to pray and prophecy during church meetings. And he does it, but he says with your head covered. So it has to mean something about that head covering. And I think it goes back to male eldership. So what Paul is after is not making women mad. What he's after is is that in the gatherings, he wants order so that people experience God and are built up in love and unity and maturity, as opposed to what's going on in Corinth, where literally he says people are worse off for coming to their gatherings. It's terrible. Verse 36, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people that is reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, then they will themselves be ignored. So Paul then gives them some warnings. He says, listen, if anyone thinks that they have the gift of prophecy or tongues and they dismiss what Paul's authoritative word and teaching is about how it should be practiced, then they should be ignored by the church. If they're not willing to abide by scripture, then you need to say, no, buddy, that's, that's not happening. And so he tells us that. Verse 39, he sums it up with this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, and this is a summary of chapters 12 through 14. So if you don't hear anything I've said, I know it's been a long time, three final remarks right here. He says, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's what Paul wants us to know about spiritual gifts. And if I could just encourage you, he wants you to be clear on what they are and clear on how important they are so that you know how to pray for them. Like we want spiritual gifts. Be eager for them, specifically and especially prophecy. And he wants us not to forbid any of them. Like we need to be open-handed. If God wants to use the gift of tongues, God wants to use prophecy, if he wants to use hospitality, if he wants to use mercy in our church, then we need to receive and be open to what God wants to do. And then everything we do needs to be done in an orderly way with the motivation of love, with the attitude of service that builds up other people. If you come to a spiritual gift and think about it selfishly, you're missing the point. So right where you are, where do you land this plane, right? I know, well, I'm gonna land it. God has a purpose for your life. I want you to see this. God has designed the church not to be about one individual, it's about a body walking with God, seeking to build one another up and serve each other in a way that helps each other grow. So are you on the sidelines or are you in the game? And if you're not in the game, may this invitation of Paul just ring true in your heart this morning. So let's pray together. Father, I pray, God, that you would make us a church, God, that's sensitive to your spirit, God, that follows your spirit. God, that utilizes spiritual gifts. God, you can do more than man's strategy ever will. So God, would you empower your church to be your church? And Lord, would you align our hearts to that this morning? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?